Brothers and sisters, if you would turn in your copy of Scripture to Obadiah, and if you don't have your own copy, uh, you can turn to page 769 in the Pew Bibles. Obadiah. Obadiah. The shortest book in the Old Testament. The great prophet Obadiah. We only know, unlike Amos, who we knew Amos was a shepherd. Obadiah, we just know that his name means the servant of the Lord. Obed and Yah, right? That's what his name means. And that's all we know because there are about 12 Obadiahs in the Old Testament and no one's really sure which one this one is. And so you just kind of say, well, what's this about? So you know very little about the person that's saying this message and that's on purpose because the primary speaker in prophecy is not the prophet, but God. Yahweh, the one who sends out his prophets to his people to proclaim a message of not only repentance, we get that from the prophets, we get this kind of their fiery, not just this repentance, but also this great, beautiful faith in a future promise that God calls his people to put their trust in. And as I said last week, I took a little bit of a risk in mentioning a show that Ashley and I really enjoy and Nobody has seen this show, which is okay, but I'm going to take another risk this morning to venture to say that maybe you all have heard of the Avengers and Marvel Comics, maybe, as it's been a cultural icon in our world and it's made billions of dollars, and if you haven't seen it, that's okay, because it's not that important, it's just a a sermon illustration to make this point, that if you know anything about the Avengers, One of the characters that has become, in a weird way, beloved is the character of who am I going to mention? Y'all are wondering where I'm going with this. Is Loki. Loki just got a show, and he's really popular, and he's really, you know, he's the, the mischief god, the god of mischief. And he's got a brother named Thor. And there is this constant battle between Thor and Loki. And and of particular note is in the first Thor movie, they're fighting and Loki's getting ready to destroy an entire people. And Thor says to Loki, hey, why why are you going to destroy an entire race of people? And Loki responds by saying, to prove to Father that I am a worthy son. Then I will be true heir to the throne. But in reality, I never wanted the throne. I only wanted to be your equal, Thor. And so you start to feel this tension like, Loki's not that bad. (laughs) He's just kind of hurt. And he's trying to go kill people to prove his worth, right? So in a weird way, you're like, I kind of get Loki. I understand, because I'm trying to prove my worth too. Then in this other scene, Loki and Thor, I don't remember which one it is. It might be the Avenger. I don't, it doesn't matter. But they're getting this, this moment, they're face to face, and you're like, oh my goodness, this is going to be the moment where Loki and Thor lock arms and they're going to just make everything right. And, and you're like, wow, they love each other. And then all of a sudden, Loki stabs his brother and he says, sentiment. At the moment that you think Loki is going to just turn and say, yeah, you know what, I was wrong. I shouldn't have been trying to hurt people. But my jealousy and my pride always gets in the way. And then even in this latest show that Loki got, you know, I'm not going to go into all the details of it, but he says to this group of people 
He says, you will not dictate how my story ends. I am on the verge of acquiring everything I am owed. And you know what the simple response to them is? It's the same response that God would give to you this morning when you shake your fist at heaven and say, this is not what I signed up for. This is not how my story is supposed to be written. This is the response. They say, it's not your story. And it never was. My friend, your story is not about you. Your story is about another. And we resonate with Loki and Thor because maybe you don't have any kind of uh, fraternicide that you want to go kill your brother. Maybe you do. I don't know. We're not going to get into that. But in Loki and Thor, we see this tension in our own hearts because it's something that's gone all the way back to the Garden of Eden where Cain kills Abel. And in our particular story, Esau wants to kill Jacob. Esau is jealous of Jacob. Esau wants to take what is rightfully his, what he is owed. Remember, Jacob and Esau wrestled in Rebekah's womb. And remember that Jacob, which means deceiver, deceived their father Isaac and took the blessing from Esau. And from that point on, the people of Jacob, who are Israel, and the people of Esau, who is Edom, were at war. And so if you're wondering who Edom is, E-D-O-M, and the title of the sermon is Edom? (laughs) That's the people of Esau. And so Obadiah is, is preaching to the people of Esau, but God's people are supposed to listen up. Why would it be in our canon of Scripture if God's people aren't supposed to take note of what God says to a rebellious people? Because He is trying to warn you and He's trying to warn me of what is at stake if we let jealousy and bitterness and pride, keeping account of what I am owed, what it will do to you if you let it. If you continue to hear that story. See, this this arguing between Edom and Israel continued on through when Israel was redeemed from slavery. In Numbers 21, Israel asked Edom, they said, hey, can we pass through your land? And Edom said, nope. That was the faster way. But they said, no, you may not pass through here. We don't care what you're doing. We know that you're our distant cousins, but we don't care. Go find another route. And so their decision, quite frankly, meant suffering for the people of Israel. And you see, this animosity continued on up until the people of Edom were destroyed in A.D. 70 by Rome. You see, Edom is synonymous with the enemy of Israel. They were enemies before the Philistines, before Goliath, like all before that. Edom was there and always nipping at Israel's heels, always wanting them to give them what they were owed because they were treacherous and deceivers and took it away. Then it continues to go on through the time of Jesus. King Herod was an Idumean, I-D-U-M-E-A-N. Idumea is another word for Edom. And so the people of God have always been at war with the enemies of God and the people of Edom. And in fact, many scholars, as they've tried to debate 
when Obadiah was written. They're not really sure. And so there's six dates given. I particularly take the the view that this happened around right after the Babylonian exile in 586. That's beside the point. The main point is that there's reason why there are six different dates given. And the reason is because it could have been at any point. Because Edom was always there trying to destroy God's people. Always standing back, looking and waiting for God's people to be destroyed because they were jealous. And so, the point is that Edom, Edom is a type of all those who stand against God and His people. And the main point of our text today is this. God ousts the proud and gives rest to the oppressed. Trying to do a little bit of a rhyme there. God ousts the proud and gives rest to the oppressed. Our passage comes in four movements that will form four very brief points from our passage. And so we look at this, these four points, in saying, why is God against Edom? And so we see in verses 1-4, through the diagnosis is pride. The diagnosis for why Edom will be destroyed is pride. Let's look at verses 1-4. through The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up! Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Edom, for ease of reference, is modern day Jordan. So if you look at a map and you see the the Dead Sea right here, They are down in the southeast, roughly. So southeast of the Dead Sea. And in that area, there's a town called Petra. I don't know if if anybody's been to Petra or not, but Petra means rock, because the people of Edom were very intelligent and decided that, hey, we should build our our community in rocks, in the middle of these clefts. And, And I've had the opportunity to go to Petra. It's an amazing place, and ironically, it's a red stoned place. Esau meaning red, right? But you go to Petra and you have to walk through this slot canyon for almost a mile until you get to this beautiful opening where you have the temple, you have all the commerce happened there. And they built their livelihood in rocks, in the canyons, and were protected. They were well positioned geographically. And they were also well-positioned economically. See, along that southeastern border is what's called the King's Highway, or we call it sometimes the Silk Road. And it was the main point of traverse of, of merchants who would go from Africa up to China and China down to Africa. And so Edom was a very affluent country because of that. And you can kind of almost get into their psyche a little bit. I was, I was spending some time this week just trying to get into why is Edom so nasty towards Israel? Well, 
We already have the story that they kept telling themselves, like, well, they did something bad to us generations ago, but still, you know, a modern, you know, an ancient Hatfield and McCoy story. But then they also became proud because they made good decisions. They took care of themselves. They were smart enough to build in the rock, and everybody else kind of built on you know, shifting sands, but we are smart. And you can see that pride continuing to grow in their own hearts because look what I have done. Look what we have done. We're pretty smart folks, aren't we, to pick such an amazing place to build our, our community. And you can see that pride in verse 8 below, which we'll get to now. In this second thing. So you have the diagnosis of pride of Edom, but then you have God's response. And this is actually a negative response. God responds in two ways. And this is, first of all, the response of the Lord ousts the proud. The Lord ousts the proud. Just like when someone gets cancer, what do you do? You cut out the cancer first. You do the negative. You triage. You try to just get things fixed immediately. And that's what God does here in verses 5 through 9. That God's response is to oust the proud. Verse 5. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? Meaning that they wouldn't take everything. If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies, the ones that you trusted in militarily, have driven you to your border, meaning they pushed you out. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Something we need to see here is that the Lord promises to utterly destroy Edom. You know, the past few weeks we've seen that God spares a remnant of Israel. Why? Anybody who called out to God for mercy would be spared. But here... God utterly destroys His enemies. Those who would pound their chest, shake their fist, God says, nope, not leaving a remnant of you because you aren't humble enough, forgive me, of your sin, but you have, you have made God your enemy and all, of enemy, all the enemies of God are going to be utterly wiped out. And He's been clear, God's been clear from the very beginning that He is against those who think highly of themselves. Let me just, by way of reminder, let you know that being proud doesn't always manifest itself with shaking the fist or pounding the chest. But let's hear what God says in a few passages here, and I'll give them to you if you want to write them down and look at them later and meditate on them. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, He will not go unpunished. Psalm 101 verse 5 says, whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. Isaiah 2 verse 12 says, for the Lord of hosts 
has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. See, pride always doesn't look like hurting someone. Pride can be in the heart and in the pride of the eyes, a haughty look against someone else. Congratulating ourselves rather than being thankful to God for what He's given to us. C.S. Lewis famously wrote about pride where he says, According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Yeah, sure, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison to pride. Because it was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And I would add, not just anti-God, but God-absent. God-absent from your decisions in life. You being the referential point in your life and in your decisions in life. That is the essence of pride. And so what will the Lord do on that day? He will wipe out all those who are proud in heart. Not leaving one. Third point is this, is that the Lord has already diagnosed pride. He's already said, I'm going to oust the proud. I'm going to cut out the disease. But then he revisits it in this third movement in verses 10 through 14. And we see what the symptoms of pride are. And I'll get into why that's important. To Notice that there are symptoms of pride. And those symptoms are envy, jealousy, gloating, and bitterness. So the symptoms of pride, this is point three, are envy, jealousy, gloating, and bitterness. Verses 10 through 14, let's look at it here. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Don't gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Don't loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Don't stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Don't hand over his survivors in the day of distress. The Lord is relentless. He keeps hitting on the same point. Don't do this in their misfortune. See, the insidious thing about pride is that those who are proud hardly ever see it. If I were to ask you, are you proud? The knee-jerk response should be, yes. <laughs> but too often, we say, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not proud. Ask your coworker. Ask your spouse. Ask your children. 
Because the problem with pride is that, my friend, you will not see it in and of yourself because all of us want to not believe that we are on that side of history. But the Lord gives us pretty clear symptoms that we can look for in our life to say, hmm, maybe I am proud. Maybe I do lift up my heart over other people. So as we look at Edom and consider his pride, the Lord calls out some very specific issues to diagnose. And like I said, I've been trying to get into the psyche of Edom, why they would be like this. And my question is, why would Edom stand aloof in verse 11? Why would they stand aloof as his brother was being devastated by Babylon? And I can imagine that since the time Jacob deceived their father Isaac, the story Esau had been telling his children and the children's children and the children's children was how all of that that Israel had was rightfully theirs. And that deceiver took it from us. You can you just imagine it just being a snowball and continuing to grow in this jealousy and this envy. And they couldn't get past that offense. When they were sinned against, because they were rightly sinned against, let's not, let's not kind of throw that under the rug. They were sinned against. But they couldn't let it go. So my friend, when you are sinned against, are you having trouble letting something go? See, they were envious of Israel's position of the beloved that, that God loved Jacob. It was wrongly taken from them. They were sinned against. They were offended. They were jealous for how God had favored Jacob over Esau. They were bitter as they continued to tell the story of Jacob's offense. How dare he take that from me? So my friend, let me ask you this. Do you find it hard to forgive when you're sinned against? Truly sinned against. It's hard to forgive someone who offends you, isn't it? I confess that. Yeah, it's hard. Because it hurts. There's a fascinating interview with an Atlantic columnist named Elizabeth Brunig who is interviewed on the topic of forgiveness. And on, it she, and on that interview, she said this, and I'm going to read, it's an extended quote because there's so much good here that we can learn as it relates to Edom and the call to forgive his brother Jacob. <clears throat> she, she says this, Forgiveness doesn't undo the fact of the offense. Nor does forgiveness suggest that the offense wasn't really that bad. So a lot of the times when you read from people thinking through forgiveness, what you actually see them doing is try to find ways to mitigate the offense. To try to make it not seem that bad. People will say, well, I wanted to forgive this person, so I took into account that they didn't really mean it. When they did really mean it. Ah, they were young, or they were sick, or they were tired. They really didn't mean to offend me. She says, forgiveness is when you decide to permanently forego seeking restitution or vengeance, or however you want to think about it, for an offense that someone really did commit. It's painful. 
Whatever forgiveness is, it's certainly not something you do for your own pleasure or your own health. The person doing the forgiving isn't getting a lot of bang for their buck. Forgiveness is not deserved by definition. It's not something somebody earns. It's something that's freely given. I definitely think that the internet is very good at inflaming our worst tendencies. And one of those is the tendency to discipline and punish and prosecute other people, not for our safety and not for the preservation of our community, but just for fun. This last phrase is very insightful for our culture right now. We spoke about it a little bit in in our uh, Sunday school class on Ephesians. And I want you to not just be thinking about up here. Let's, Let's bring it down to what's going on right now in our culture. Just briefly. Just by way of example. I want you to consider how you react when someone on the opposing position has difficulty in their life. So you got it fixed in your mind. The person that irks you on social media and a comment that they make, the other, other side, right? How do you react when they have difficulty? Of particular note, let me bring this down to a current situation. If you are vaccinated, I went there, do you find yourself when someone who is unvaccinated goes to the hospital? And you, under your breath, say, serves them right. So stupid. What if you're unvaccinated, friend? What do you do when someone who is vaccinated goes to the hospital? Do you say, serves them right. They're stupid. What's your reaction? When the other political party loses, when the other has difficulty, Do you gloat? Do you say serves them right? I had a friend die from COVID. And I had another friend say to me, well, did they die from COVID or with COVID? I was like, they die. Let's grieve. Let's mourn. These are human beings. The one who's on the other side of the aisle is a human being. It's your brother. It's your sister. We're all in this together. And if we can't get around all of the buzz, and if we can't focus on Jesus, then we should shut the doors. Unity. Unity is not easy. Forgiveness is not easy. But you have to find a way to let go of things. To let people be people and to work through their own issues and to be there for them. Not to have an answer like Job's friends had to have. But to let people wrestle and struggle and be real and honest and to forgive as Christ Jesus has forgiven you. You have eternally offended God. And He forgave you. See, God's people are called to do the harder work. To do and take the more sacrificial path. It's not easy and you don't get much bang for your buck. 
when you forgive. But Israel could just as easily been embittered against Edom, couldn't they have? When they were walking through the wilderness in Numbers 21 that I alluded to just a moment ago, they could have said, those jerks. Don't they know? Like, we're going to have to walk around the wilderness and get sunburned, and our, our sandals are burning up and they're breaking. Don't they understand that by not letting us go through there, we're going to be hurt. They're going to cause more suffering in our lives. And they could have easily been embittered by not letting them go through. And they did. They added to their suffering already. They had just come out of Egypt, and they were saying, please, just let us go through. we just got to get there. We, we're not going to touch anything. We just need to get there. And Edom said, nope. Find another way. But what does God tell His people in Deuteronomy 23.7? God says to them, You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. But then God takes it another step. An even more <clears throat> painful step. In that same verse He says, You shall not abhor an Egyptian. Because you were a sojourner in his land. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, the one who you were in slavery to. You must forgive. And the beautiful thing is, is that when we forgive, we are actively killing pride in our own hearts. Hear me clearly. There are offenses that need restitution in a court of law. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying just, just forgive and that, that, that criminal can go free. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm going to be very clear. But the majority of offenses against us wound our pride. Their sin, for sure. They're painful, yes. And they deserve restitution in God's court of law. But, and hear me out on this, this is a whole complicated mess it can be. I'm getting to the point of this, but when we let bitterness get a foothold in our life, we seek to hold the gavel on when the person has paid the debt. And I've seen this over the years that the debt, my friend, is never paid when you and I hold the gavel because we make poor judges and juries. This forgiveness is the harder path. This is the path that God's people are called to walk. Yes, walk with a cross on their back. So, how do we get to that place? And that brings us to our fourth point. How do we get to that place where the place of suffering, the place of pain, of carrying a cross on our back becomes possible? Well, the remedy, the true remedy. You know how I said that God comes in, cuts out the cancer? Well, there's a remedy that brings true health. Just cutting out the cancer is not the solution. The solution is whole health is what needs to happen. True restoration. And so the remedy, point number four, is this. True rest for the oppressed. Verses 15 through 21. True rest for the oppressed. Let's read here. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. The remnant he talks about. And it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions that God gives them. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau, stubble. 
They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. My friend, have you been sinned against? If you have lived on this earth for any amount of time, yes, the answer is yes. You have been sinned against. It can be really great or really low. does not matter. You have been sinned against. And have you found it hard to forgive? Yes, I'm sure you have. Have you found yourself gloating when the other side gets hurt? Do you find yourself looking at people's posts and having just a twinge of jealousy rise up in your heart, wanting what they have? unsatisfied with the field the Lord has given you. This last section reminds us that God will bring complete and everlasting rest for His people. This is the answer. If you're like, Matt, I'm having trouble forgiving. I'm having trouble taking on my cross. The only way for that to happen is to remember verse 21. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The Lord reminds us that He is supreme over all kingdoms, all political parties, He reminds us that the meek shall inherit the earth, that they shall have possession of all things. The meek shall. Why the meek? Because the Lord has given it to them. It's a gracious gift. While the proud are consumed in His presence. You see, Israel had many saviors trying to free them politically. Right? You have the Maccabeans. You have the Zealots. Right? You have all these different folks throughout history that were trying to redeem the people of Israel politically. But they were all foretastes and pointers to a Savior who would redeem His people, truly, truly give them rest. Truly give them the kingdom that is theirs. You see, Edom is not simply a people, but Edom represents the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people. Those who gloat over God's people will always be present. Those who will say you are an idiot for forgiving. Those who would seek to enslave God's people is actually not a people. It's the tendency of pride to make us assert our rights and ways over God's rights and God's ways. We are told that the day of the Lord would set free forever those who are enslaved to their sin. Your greatest problem is not the offender, but it is sin. The sin of the offender and the sin in your own heart. And the Lord says, I can free you from that if you will let me. Because, my friends, I alluded to this at the beginning, that Obadiah is here in our Bible not merely to warn Edom, but we get to eavesdrop on what God is saying to Edom and to be a warning to us to not be like Edom, to not let bitterness and envy and jealousy and strife get a foothold in our lives. We all have pride in our hearts. All of us. Every single person here has pride in their hearts. And all of us harbor bitterness when offended. We find the cross too heavy to bear. 
my friend, right where you are in your struggles to forgive, in your struggles to receive forgiveness, I want to remind you, and Obadiah and the Lord would remind you that He loves you still, wherever you're at, whatever you're struggling with. And He calls out to you to know that you don't have to ascend a mountain to earn His favor, to prove your worth. For there is one Savior who ascended the mountain. There is one Savior who shares with His people all things, all possessions that He won. Because you can't ascend the mountain. You need another to carry you. And that is the only way. That is the only way. Is by looking to Jesus and saying this one Savior can free you and me and all those who call out to Him from this malady. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is not easy to take up a cross. It is not easy to forgive when offended. It is not easy to not harbor bitterness in our hearts and to envy those who have things that we want. To not be jealous that we are owed that. Oh God, we thank You that in the midst of that ugliness, of that difficulty, You are here. And You extend out to each one of those who call out to You forgiveness for offending You. And You give us Your very own Spirit as the inheritance that, that we have been longing for. We pray that You would help us to focus our attention on You, on walking with You, be it ever so painful. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.